some of you need to make your bed. Um, but there's a book about it, and it's, it's actually a book on leadership. Uh, it's written by Admiral William H. McRaven um, of the U United States Navy, who is now retired. He was a Navy SEAL for 37 years, Special Operations Navy SEAL for 37 years. Um, he was a four-star um, admiral, um, and he commanded on every level imaginable. He actually oversaw the mission to capture Saddam Hussein, and I think it was 2004, and when he was captured, he was in charge of security, and he visited Saddam every single day to make sure that, that he was secure. Um, he comments in his book with amusement, he never made his bed. <laughs> um, the book is an expansion, basically. It's not a very big book, but he gave it an ex a commencement speech um, at the University of Texas, and he told these young graduates, make your bed. He says, life is hard, and sometimes there's little you can do to affect the outcome. In battle, soldiers die. Families grieve. Your days are filled with anxious moments. You search for something that can give you solace. <clears throat> something that can give you structure. Nothing can replace the strength and comfort of one's family, but sometimes the simple act of making your bed can, can give you the lift that you need to start your day and provide you the sa satisfaction to end it right. He says, he continues, that making your bed will reinforce the fact that little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things, you will never be able to do the big things. That's the principle. That's why the military, when you go into boot camp, they teach you how to make your bed right and expect you to make it every morning. What a ridiculous thing. Why do they do this? Who cares? The, the, well, the idea is that if you can't live your life with order and do the simple things right, how are you going to have order and do the difficult things in battle right? See? One little thing done right prepares us to do the next little thing right. And the next little thing right. And finally, a big thing comes, and we're ready to handle it correctly. Relationally speaking, in the Song of Solomon, this newlywed couple has continually done little things right. They made their bed, so to speak, with each other. They preserved their purity. They engaged, if you recall, in emotionally intimate conversation. They didn't hide things from each other. They were concerned about the other's heart, where they were at. They loved each other. They did not hide from each other. They walked in accountability. This all before marriage. Now they're married, and I don't know if you could kind of tell, but their relationship goes a little bit sideways. How many people have had a relationship that went sideways? <laughs> okay, right. Some hands went up quicker than others. We all have relationships that go sideways from time to time. All relationships go sideways. Even the healthiest and best of marriages, if you're married, and you'll, you can attest to this, even if your marriage is healthy and you love your wife dearly, it probably at some point went sideways. There's a micro sideways, and then there's a macro sideways, right? Like little conflicts where you tick each other off, and then really big, important ones. And all marriages have to endure this. All relationships do. 
they enter conflict, disappointment, and rejection. But like well-trained relational ninjas, these two were ready because they did the little things right. They recover in what was their pain, and they did the next thing right. Do you know that so often in life, our relationships end the way that they begin? That's, that's true. That's a fact of life. Our relationships so often end the way that they begin. So if your relationship begins in this emotional, undisciplined frenzy, with little concern about what's right or what, uh, what, what people that matter think about the situation, chances are it will end the same way. When we act on self-perceived, subjective needs, it's normally how our romances start in our culture, but it's also normally how, how and why they end. I think it should shock us a little more how often we don't mean the vows that we take. And listen, that's a tough statement. And I know some of you have been through war in life with relationships. So let let me put the spotlight on me. I know how often I have not lived up to the vows I took. I often have officiated weddings throughout my my long and illustrious pastoral career. (laughs) Um, And I notice um, this quite frequently. And I I use traditional wedding vows whenever I officiate weddings because they're they're uniquely Christian and they complement what the Bible defines as what marriage is. Um, I make sure that when I marry a couple that they know that, that they know what they're going to be promising each other, that these aren't just kind of words that they're reciting kind of blindly, right? Just to make me happy or like make themselves feel good because it's a tradition, but they actually mean, understand, and know what they're saying, what they're talking about, that they're willing to abide by those vows. You guys have heard these vows probably a million times. You might have even, you might have even said them to one, two, three, four, five, seven people. I don't know, right? I take you to be my wedded wife, to have, or bride, right? I mean husband. To have to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, in good times and in bad, for richer or for poor, in sickness and health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. That's a tall order, isn't it? Even the best of marriages fail this. We fail to love and to cherish. I, I don't think I cherished my wife yesterday. Right? How often I don't. She steps on my toes, so to speak, right? It's, it's usually not her fault, and she hasn't done anything wrong, but because I'm touchy and immature, right, I, I yelp. And I'm not cherishing that lovely lady that God has brought to me. In sickness and in health, you want tissues? Come on, get your own tissues. You know, I know you're sick, but you're laying on a little thick right now. Right? We're, we don't do this. We don't live up to this. And friends, no one does. Being on the other side of some marriages, I see though, so, so all of us fail them and we, you know, from time to time. But, but so often, we entirely forget them. We don't even want to live up to them anymore, or, or we just intentionally disregard them altogether. Now, friends, please know that I understand that the Bible does get, I'm not trying to lay guilt on people or to shame people. The Bible gives us an emergency break. With Some marriages are ab- abusive. Some marriages... Um, um, and in adultery, I, I get it. 
I understand that just because you've been through a divorce doesn't mean that that wasn't the thing that you had to do. It might have been an awful experience, something that you never wanted to do, but were, but were forced to do. So I'm not trying to guilt or to shame anyone. And even if you, you were the one that left and shouldn't have and you messed up, there's, you know, there's grace for you, friend. Jesus died for sinners like us. Okay? So it's a new day. So, so often what I notice, though, is that adultery and abuse and these kinds of extreme things are not usually the impetus for a marriage to end. Now, as a, as a pastoral counselor, I've gotten a window into this from time to time. I see two people that basically over time just got sick of each other. Right? There's no infidelity, there's no adultery, there's no abuse. They're just sick of each other. Their pet peeves have gained momentum. Their, their constant micro-frictions and fights lead to a distance and an eventual disdain. Isn't that true? And it begins to crush your soul. That distance crushes your soul. It produces a profound loneliness. The two people have simply stopped being each other's friends and started serving themselves, surviving. And when it's enough, someone leaves. So, so often when we say in good times and in bad times, it really becomes in good times and in good times because there's just too many bad times. When we said only death will separate us, what we really meant was pain will separate us too. And again, I'm not here to judge you, friend. I get the emotional weight that some of us have carried throughout our lives in our marriages, those most intimate relationships. In Christ, like I said, there's, there's grace. It's a new day. But how do we go forward knowing these things? How do we daily make our relational beds with the new day that God has given us? See, that's what we need to learn. That's how we need to grow. If marriage is meant to illustrate our love relationship with God, as we said time and time again, what do we do when he seems far off and disinterested? When our relationship with him seems like it's on the rocks? Like he has left us. Now, these are the questions I hope to answer this morning. Our sermon's only going to be 14 hours, okay? So that's why we got food for you this morning. I see four things happening in this new couple's first fight. Knock, open, chase, embrace. Knock, open, chase, embrace. You do these four things. If two people do these four things in marriage, your marriage will never fail, and you will only know happiness and longevity. Knock, open, chase, embrace. It's what God calls us, calls us to do with him and our relationship with Christ. And it's what he calls us to do with the one that we said, I do too. Okay? In good times and in bad times. So let's look at knock. Last time our story closed with the husband and wife consummating. Right? They had just made love on their wedding night. Now, all of a sudden, a new scene opens. We don't know how far after the wedding night it is. It could have been days. It could have been years. The Bible just doesn't tell us. We just know that there's a new scene. A new chapter opens. And friends, isn't that true in life? You have a chapter. You have a scene oftentimes in relationships where it's thrilling and romantic and wonderful. And then all of a sudden, a new door opens. The one that we did not want to open. Suddenly, 
She's in this new scene sometimes later. She's waited. This is basically what's going on. It seems as if she's been waiting for her husband. He's out late, so she's tired of waiting, so she washes up. She takes a bath. She has some tea. She decides, I'm going to bed. It's getting late. So she falls asleep. She's sort of half asleep. And then suddenly, she hears a knock on the door. It's him, but she's sleeping. He'd been out late, maybe working at night. Not something terribly wrong, but he probably should have been home, right? But he wasn't. And now he's home, and he's ready for a bit more than holding hands. Okay? You might have missed that in the text, but the poetry is implying that he's ready for some lovemaking. Okay? So he's coming a knocking, and she put her earplugs in. <laughs> he begins to speak and plead with her with emotionally intimate words, these same words that he was willing to use before, he's still willing to do maybe months or even years later. She, he says, open to me, my love, my perfect one. My head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. So there, were, there was a distance, an emotional distance, a physical distance. He's been out. It's natural to have these sorts of distances in the ebbs and flows of relationships and marriage. You have to have them. You can't be always intertwined with each other. You have to go to work sometimes. You have to play with your kids sometimes. There is a distance that's normal. But it's a distance that if it's maintained for too long will create frustration and pain. Married couples are not supposed to be content with distance. And it's why we need to, like this faithful bridegroom, to knock, plead, and wait She's not answering, but I got to stick around. I got to wait for her to answer the door. So the basic principle of a healthy relationship is to possess a discontent with distance. Does it make you unsettled to be emotionally, physically, and spiritually distant from your spouse for too long? Because if it doesn't bother you anymore, then I might suggest to you that your relationship is either dying or dead. It's not too late, though, because Jesus can resurrect the dead. Okay? Knock, plead, and wait. So, what's the, so that's what he does. He's at the door. He's at the chamber. He's knocking. He's, his head is soaking wet. It's been raining. Let me in, please. I love you. You're perfect, right? What else can he pull out of the compliment case? So what is she supposed to do? <laughs> She's supposed to get up, right? She said, oh, he's here. I'm so glad. My, he, you know, he was lost. Now he's found. I'm going to go open the door, and I'm going to let him in. <laughs> right? Amen, said all the men. But, but guess what? She's not into it. You know what she says? This is actually kind of funny, because you might miss it. She said, I, I put off my garment. How could I put it back on? She said, in other words, I'm in my PJs. Right? Like, I was ready for this two hours ago. But now I'm in my PJs. I'm not only in my PJs, but like you just woke me up. And she, you know what else she says? I bathed my feet. How can I soil them again? I'm clean. I just took a shower, right? And you woke me up. No way, buddy. <laughs> now you might think that this is a lesson in timing, right? Because there's a place for that. Isn't that true? If you're married, say amen. There's a place for timing. 
there's nothing wrong with, you know, we're just tired tonight, it's not the right time, okay? To, you know, and, and we're talking about physical stuff right now, but even emotionally, sometimes we have emotionally draining conversations, and it's just not the right time. We, it's got to wait till tomorrow night, right? Because maybe something happened in the day, right? So we have to have discretion. This, but this is not a lesson in timing, friends. It has a, a, a broader and a more general implication, and the first of which, I think, is the general desire for mutual intimacy that's physical, emotional, or spiritual. So in other words, how chronically do we turn over in bed? How chronically do we dodge a conversation? How many excuses do we constantly give to be distant? You see what I mean? That's the difference. So this is not a lesson in timing. This is a lesson in attitude. Okay? Something has happened to your heart, potentially, for the other person. So marriage, friends, it's not meant to be chronically distant. And life has a way of creating excuses for us. I don't have time to make my bed every morning. I'm just too tired. That's why we don't make our beds, right? So we're never close. We're never naked in front of each other as a married couple. Naked emotionally, naked spiritually, naked physically. We're always clothed. And we always provide some excuse. I just washed my feet. I'm, I, I don't have time for this right now. I already had an emotionally heavy conversation today, and I don't want to have another one with you. So we give the best of what we have emotionally, physically, and spiritually to everyone else. And then when we get home, we don't give any of it to our spouse. And we think our relationship with our husband or our wife is going to be happy. It's not. We give the first thing to the second person and the second thing to the first. We invert it. And that is the satanic attack that is on our marriages if you're married or will be on your marriage if you one day get married. We all have bad days, that's true. The ex expectation is not that we're not going to have a bad day and we're not just going to be like, not now, right? But love, if you really love the other person, that will not be a daily thing. You'll get sick of that. You won't want that to be chronic. You, don't wa you won't want it to last too long. You know that, I'm not trying to brag, but some, sometimes Mandy and I get into a fight, and I don't last long if we've been fighting. I just don't. Like, an hour later, I'm like, i got to make this right. Like, I don't like conflict with me and my wife. It just makes me miserable. It makes, it crushes me. It should, right? He persists. He knocks. He speaks. Finally, she puts her slippers on. I arose to open to my beloved, but uh-oh. He should have stuck around. He should have waited. But my beloved had turned and gone. And that can be the sad fact of marriage. One day, we finally decide to get up and respond to the emotional, physical, or spiritual knock of our lover, but it's too late. They've left. He was sick of knocking. He should have waited, but he didn't. And it helps to illustrate, I think, the pattern of selfishness that can destroy relationships. She should have let him in, right? But he should have stuck around. 
what happens in relationships is we start blaming the other person rather than looking at what we did. Right? Well, I left because she didn't get up. Okay, Adam and Eve. Right? That's what they said to it. Like, it's the woman. You gave me the woman. It's not my fault. We start to blame shift right away. We start to blame shift. That's what we do. And that's what he does. She, do, she doesn't open the door right away. If she doesn't, not, right? If she doesn't open that door on the next knock, I am out of here, right? One more time, this is it. Ooh, she didn't come again, and he leaves. So he takes off. He's mad. He should have waited, but he didn't. He storms off angry. Now what? What's your next move, ladies? What do you do now when things escalate from bad to worse? Not just ladies. This is the lady taking this role in the story, which, by the way, is super incredible because later on, we'll learn that the lady is taking the Jesus role. She's acting like Christ. And man, we're, we're, the, we're supposed to be the head of the house as Christ is the head of the church. He should have been like Christ, right? He wasn't, so she took on the role. She chased after him. So what's the next wor- wor- move, though? When things get from bad to worse, what do we do now? The bride is devastated. She opens the door to emptiness, to a dark night, and she was undone. She says, my soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. So now her clean feet are essentially dirty, and she finds herself in an even worse, inwardly devastated condition, beaten up. That's illustrated in verse 7. The watchmen found me. They went about in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. So this is an illustration, not that she was literally beaten up, but that she inwardly is devastated by this distance now from conflict in their marriage. Friends, if you're married or wish to be married, you have to note something here, that if you refuse to be present, not spitefully present, joyfully present, lovingly present, if you refuse to be present, out of spite or anger, there are devastating effects. When you don't call and when you don't answer, your soul will fail. That's what happens to hers. She doesn't answer him, and now he is not answering her. Ha-ha! Two can play at this game. But either way, the distance is soul-crushing. That's the outcome. And she's got a decision to make, like all of us have a decision to make, to make when, when, when things go even more sideways, when bad becomes worse. When she opens the door and finds him gone, she doesn't slam the door shut. She doesn't say, forget him, he's not worth it. When bad went to worse, she remembered her vows in good times and in bad times. These are the bad times. She became, you know what she does? She becomes the darkness. She takes on the outside. She was safe in her house. And she's, I'm going I'm to leave the safety of my home. And I'm going to take on the pain of this separation, this distance. I'm going to refuse to allow this loneliness and this darkness to continue. So she's not only willing now to get her feet dirty, but she's willing to enter into escalated suffering for the sake of the relationship. She begins to chase after him, number three. She refuses to allow that distance to be permanent. She goes after him. She takes on, and by the way, she is unconcerned with how he might respond to her when she shows up. 
He is my husband, and I am running after him. So she takes on this God-forsaken darkness that her husband has taken on so that they might be close again. And she even asks her friends to help her out and begins to sing a love song about all that she loves about her husband. How many people, when you're in a heated fight with your spouse, start remembering all the things you love about your husband? No. That is not our initial move. Our initial move is anger and accusation. But what brings her out of the darkness of the conflict and the separation is remembering how much she loves this man and why she loves this man. So she begins to sing about him in a fight. Isn't that great? She doesn't rehearse all the ways he failed her, how he should have stayed but didn't. She rehearses everything she loves about this man. And if darkness is to ever become light in our relationships with each other, friends, we need to announce the beauty of the other to our own hearts. We need to sing it to ourselves. You need to sing the beauty of your spouse to your spirit. Or you will just disdain them. You need to enter into their darkness, into their night, to their outside. So she speaks what he spoke to her. You remember last chapter when they got married? All the ways that he complimented her eyes and her hair and all this. She starts, he starts to do this, she starts to do the same for him in a fight. She sings about their love, his beauty, and ultimately their friendship. This is my beloved, she says, and this is my friend. And right here is the secret magic key to a powerful, romantic, and wonderful marriage. It's the Bible's secret to a happy marriage. It's not ravishing good looks. It's not financial security. It's not children, and it's not electric sex. It's not any of these things. It's friendship. Does the one you call wife, do you also call them friend? The one you call husband, do you also call friend? See? She says, this is my friend. You know, in the West, um, most of the time, we don't begin relationships with friendship. Isn't that true? As a matter of fact, if someone's a friend first, we tend not to want to be with them, right? But in the East, it's the opposite. In in, In the West, most of the time, marriages begin with romance, this electricity that we feel and sense for the other person. And remember what I said earlier, Usually the way relationships begin is the way that they end. The East begins in many places with a choice, like in arranged marriages. They decide to devote themselves to serve and love a person that they've never even met. Now, in in the West, we balk at this. How this is ridiculous. This is awful, we think. It's a sin even. But there is a, a principle that is universally true, even though there might be obviously problems too with arranged marriages. I'm not suggesting that we do that. What I am saying, though, is there's a principle that I think they understand that we need to learn as Americans and as Westerners, and that's this. At some point, you must decide to love and serve a person that you neither know or feel much of anything for. I'm going to say that again because you guys have fallen asleep. This is so, <laughs> this is so important, friends. Hear this again. At some point, you need to decide to love a person that you don't know anymore and that you have no feelings for anymore. Every single marriage that I know 
when I speak to them, that's happened. They feel like they don't really know the person that they married, and they feel like they don't really feel much for them anymore. And you have one of two places to go with that, to keep on loving them or to leave. You see, most of the time in the West, we choose door number two. We don't stick around. We must decide to love and serve a person that we don't know or feel much of anything for, for their sake. You need to start loving them for them and not for you and not because you're getting anything out of it anymore. What I think happens when you do this are two things, are the fruit of this, friendship and romance. The romance comes back, and your friendship is stronger than it ever was. Friendship is not common interests. It's not we both like to play tennis or we both like ER, right, the TV show. Friendship is not common interest. It's common purpose. It's not common interest. It's common purpose. And what's that purpose? To love and serve the other person. That is your purpose in the relationship, to love and serve the other person. And you know what's interesting, I think? The magic in that is when you do this, when you live that selflessly, what happens is you'll create in them, let's say they're being entirely selfish, which sometimes can be the case, we hold, withhold living selflessly because they're being selfish and no way I'm going to do that. That's what we do. But what happens is when we start to live, live selflessly long enough, they start to follow. They start reciprocating. And what's even more interesting, and I found this over the years in my marriage to Mandy, is you start, you know, the common interest thing, you start becoming interested in things you never were before. I watch cooking shows. <laughs> I do, and I like them. I actually like them. At first, we first come, I don't watch this. What is this? This is foolish. And then, you know, I love my wife, though. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want to be with her, and I want to enjoy something with her, and I don't really get it. But by the end, I'm like, can we watch the next one? Like, now? Because I want to see what happens. You start liking those things that you didn't like before. Hikes start to become fun. Certain foods, you start to, because you start to love each other. That's the chase of marriage refusing to allow distance, putting yourself in harm's way for the, sake of interest, for the sake of intimacy, and selflessly serving the other person so that you can become friends. Friendship and romance is a marriage. Marriage cannot be one or the other. It's got to be both. It's got to be a romance, and it's got to be a friendship. If it's just a friendship, it won't last. If it's just a romance, it won't last. If it's friendship and romance, it will. So you work on both. And finally, what happens? What do we see in the end of this amazing story? An embrace. My beloved has gone down to his garden. Where is he again? Well, if you know from weeks before, the garden is her. It's her soul. Where is, this was the question, where is he? This was her friends at the end of the last section we just read. Well, we'll help, okay, You, you just described this really awesome guy. So where is he? And she says, oh, he's back now. Never mind, you don't need to help me look anymore. Right? My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens, and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. They're back. They're united. They're embracing. Suddenly, without explanation, the two are united again. In the darkness... They find each other. 
in the darkness they find union and friendship. And normally, it's in the darkness of our relationships that, are, that they become either dead or strong. It's almost always the way happy marriages go. You find each other again in the darkness. We're not told what they said to each other. We're not told, like, hey, where have you been? Where's this conversation? It's just, they're immediately, by the way, and again, the implication here is that they're making love. And we're not given any, any in-between, any kind of, like, healing conversation. What happened? Where was the talk? Where was the makeup? Like, the makeup conversation. The Bible doesn't tell us here, but it implies to us what must have happened. It's a three-tiered process. Repentance plus forgiveness equals reconciliation. You cannot have reconciliation without forgiveness, and you can't, but you have repentance and no forgiveness. That's not reconciliation. You cannot have forgiveness without repentance. That's not reconciliation. Both need to exist for two to become one that have been afar off. We can forgive another person without them repenting. Did you know that? Without them saying, I'm sorry, without them feeling bad for the injury that they've done, not only can we, but the Bible says we must forgive people, even in spite of their posture towards us. Because a lack of forgiveness leads to anger and bitterness, and it, and it makes us very uncomfortable people, very unhappy people. We need to release people, forgive them, recognize that we've made as many mistakes as they have toward us. You see, we don't need to wait for someone to say they're sorry to forgive them. As a matter of fact, we need to do it first. You know that we can repent, too, to another person, and they refuse to forgive us, right? It can be the other side. We can truly, genuinely feel sorry for the things that we've done and seek them out to make reparations, and they just tell us to get lost. Isn't that true, too? So you can... There can be forgiveness without repentance, and there can be repentance without forgiveness. Both are entirely our own responsibility. We don't repent to people simply because we'll expect them to forgive us. We repent them in spite of what they will do. See? It doesn't matter if we've done something wrong. It doesn't matter how they treat us afterwards. We must repent. You see, both can exist on their own. But the thing is, if either one exists on their own, there is never reconciliation between the two. You see, one person must repent, the other person must forgive, or the, or the two will not become one. Your soul might be alleviated because you've forgiven, but if they have not repented, the relationship is still divided. Both are entirely our responsibility, so we must forgive despite the other person's lack of repentance, and if we have injured, we must repent despite the other person's lack of forgiveness. Without blame shifting, without excuse, and to refuse either is to live a soul-crushing life. Yet, if there's going to be union again, reconciliation again, both need to happen. So we presume that this couple, both of them, repented for what they did. I should not have left you knocking. I should not have left when you didn't come. 
we presume that they both repented. They both took responsibility for how they injured the other person. And not only that, they both forgave the other person. And the magic of reconciliation and forgiveness is union. They're one again. They're in their marriage bed again, just like they were at the beginning of the story. So the injury does not prevent us from knowing union. Grace is the essential ingredient to life after conflict. The result was union, the same union that they knew at the beginning, only this time it was stronger. And friends, if you have a spouse that is willing to love and forgive you undeservedly, it's life-giving and it's powerful, isn't it? When you do that for someone else, it's life-giving, it's powerful. And that's the cycle of redemption in marriage. Write it down if you're not married yet. If you are married, remember it. And friends, if you've come out of a bad marriage that ended, you know, this is true in, in friendships, this is true in churches, and you know, if you ever end up walking down an aisle with another person again, it, it'll be true in that marriage too. It's the cycle of redemption in marriage. Every marriage has to endure it. Distance, darkness, Repentance, forgiveness, and union. Distance, we're distant, we're not together, we should be. There's a darkness that results. Distance, darkness, repentance, forgiveness, and union. See, that's the cycle, that's the life cycle. But did you know that this can heal any broken marriage when two people do this? One person doing this isn't enough. Both have to do it. But when both do it, there is so much that you can overcome. You'd be shocked. So many things that you can forget ever happened. But you know, this is also the love story in Scripture, the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the cycle of redemption in our relationship with God. You might think, this sermon... This just doesn't have anything to do with me because I'm single, I'm not married, my, you know, I, ha- I used to be, you know, th- but I got some good news for you if that's how you're processing right now because it has everything to do with you because Jesus is the one knocking. He is the one that we need relationship with. He's the one that oftentimes we're separated from and we know the soul-crushing darkness that is the result. You see, we might not have ever known that it was him that was missing, but that darkness is because he's distant. And he's the one knocking, asking you to invite him in, wrangling at the doorknob, pleading with you, my love, my darling, open to me. Behold, Jesus says in Revelation, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he, will, and he with me. Know that Christ is knocking. He wants you. He wants your heart. He wants your soul. He wants your friendship. And friends, secondly, to perceive his absence is, is our darkest night. Our, doc, our darkest night is not an empty bank account. It's not that we went through a divorce. It's not that we don't have children. His absence is our emptiness. To need him and want him and love him and sense that he's far off 
that's the greatest problem that we have. That's the soul crusher. And friends, he's worth any pain, any struggle, any suffering that you might go through to chase after him, to run after him, no matter what the cost. And you know what? Thirdly, he's the one chasing us. Really? But finally, you know, it's interesting because a lot of times in, in your spiritual process, you sort of wake up to this. And, oh, I, you know, God is missing. I need God. And we start chasing after him. And then, and then we say we found him. But av- as our spiritual lives progress, we start realizing, you know, it was really him, the one chasing us. I was the one in the darkness that walked away from the door. And he was the one that chased me. He's the one that went into the dark night of your soul. He's the one that took the injuries of the nighttime, the suffering of the darkness that was so God-forsaken. He was, as Isaiah said, bruised by the watchman, bruised for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. We left him, and he chased us. He took the injury. And he's the one that announces why he's doing it. What is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visit him? Thou hast made him lower than the angels but crowned him with glory and honor. Wonderful. So he announces who you really are. Not a bum, not worthless, right? This is what he announces to you. He refuses to allow the distance to persist. And he is the one ready to reveal himself to us in the night, willing to forgive us, to love us, to unite himself to any lost and lonely heart. That's our God. Listen to John chapter 1 as I close. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. Where are these two lovers? They're in the dark night, right? And you say, God is far from me. I'm in a dark night. Well, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. You see, they left him at the door. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word, listen to this, hear me. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He kicked in the door. He came into the darkness and he found you. He found you. So get up, arise, repent, forgive, and be united. You see, when when we repent, he always forgives, and the result is always union with the God you've been looking for your whole life. And you know who's the way? Jesus Christ, the bridegroom. He's the one knocking at the door. He's the one chasing you through the night. He's the one finding you. Come to him, friends. Let's pray. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and we ask God if there's anyone here that does not know Christ, that need to make a decision right now to get up out of their beds and to open the door to the knocking of Christ, to turn from their sin, which shut the door to begin with, 
and trust in Christ who took on their night, their darkness, to trust that when Christ died on the cross, the Father forsook him so he would never have to forsake us. Oh, friend, if that's you, receive the invitation. Don't make excuses. Cry out to God right now, God, save me a sinner. I'm lost, but you are the light. You died for me to rescue me. Oh, friend, if that's you, you're saved. You're in the light. You're one with Christ. You're clothed in robes of white righteousness. Your beloved is yours, and you are his. And if that's you, can you raise your hand? 